Thank you, choir. You know, as Andy was uh, sharing prior to the songs they were singing, uh, God just brought to my memory the, the first individual I ever led to the Lord. Uh, it was a 16-year-old runaway uh, at DuPont Circle right in the middle of Washington, D.C. Uh, I had just recently come to know the Lord myself and had the wonderful opportunity to uh, lead that young man uh, to the Lord. It also, that night, was my uh, first opportunity to be ever, uh, ever to be confronted with a demonic, uh, possessed individual. Uh, I went to share with, uh, with an adult man, and as I began to share with him about Christ, uh, I can't share the language he used, but he would just start talking about, well, that blankety-blank-blank-blank Jew, they, you know, they, they put him to death. He was crucified. And, of course, I had no idea what was going on. I was just a new believer, and just as innocent as anything, I said, well, well yes, sir, but God raised him from the dead. And, and when I said that, I can't share with you uh, his response. And, uh, and then some of uh, 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 my fellow Christians who were much more mature than I was and knew exactly what was going on, they sort of came to my side to uh, rescue me from that uh, situation. Uh, well, I hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as uh, you were coming in today. If you did not, you can uh, get one as you uh, exit glean from it, I trust. Uh, by the way, you can always go to the church website, uh, not only to hear the message or see it on video, but also you can download the sermon notes. And uh, when you download those notes, all the blanks are filled in for you. So uh, if you ever miss a Sunday and you would like the sermon notes, you can go there uh, to get that. Uh, today we come to Psalm 131, which is the 12th of the 15 psalms, which are known as the psalms of the degrees. Uh, for the sake of our guest, uh, just to give a little review, uh, we believe these psalms were compiled by the Old Testament king Hezekiah to be sung in praise to God for the miracle of the degrees and what that miracle signified. Uh, you will remember Hezekiah became sick, and God told him through the prophet Isaiah, quote, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. On top of that, the nation had been invaded by the world's greatest military power, the brutal Assyrian Empire. King Hezekiah prayed in tears for God to show mercy. God responded by promising to heal Hezekiah, add 15 years to his life, and deliver Israel from the Assyrians. God then performed the miracle of the degrees, uh, causing the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz to go back 10 degrees, thus miraculously creating a longer day. The miracle was God's assurance he would perform what he had promised. And of course, he did. As you know, he healed Hezekiah. He did give him a 15 years additional life and supernaturally delivered uh, Israel from the Assyrians <clears throat> when all looked lost. Remember, they invaded the country. 
uh, literally through, overthrew every fortified city except Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the last city standing, uh, surrounded by the Assyrians. Uh, everything looked bleak. It looked hopeless. And God, uh, to be true to His promise, sent an angel of the Lord into the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, which put them in retreat uh, back to their homeland, a defeated people, but Israel rejoicing in the deliverance God gave them. The theme of the Psalms of the Degrees is celebrating triumph over trouble through trust in God. Psalm 131 is one of four Psalms of David contained in the Psalms of the Degrees. So please follow in your sermon notes. Uh, you'll see the uh, psalm printed there for you, and uh, let me read it as you follow along. And I've entitled this psalm, The Contented Soul. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. In this brief but beautiful psalm, uh, David renounces pride in verse 1, expresses humble contentment and confidence in God in verse 2, and then encourages Israel to place their hope in God in verse 3. So uh, let me just again, as I've been doing for all of these psalms, uh, just give you a brief uh, summary overview. We'll look at the historical background and then uh, lessons to be learned for today. So look again at how verse 1 begins. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. When David refers to the proud heart and haughty eyes, he is revealing the inner attitudes and desires of a person that is trusting in himself and not God. A God, a person whose inner motivation and drive is for self-promotion. The second part of verse 1 exposes two external actions that will always be produced by a proud heart and a proud look. Notice it reads, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Pride always causes a person to overestimate their importance and abilities. Therefore, they are always overreaching, trying to obtain greater status and recognition. The proud envy those who have obtained more than they have. And they are never content, never satisfied, always fretting, always scheming to get what they selfishly seek. A proud heart and a proud look lead to fantasizing about oneself, puffing up self while covering up all the hidden inadequacies. For a time, the proud person 
may be able to impress others, but ultimately, the overestimation of one's abilities and the overreaching to achieve leads to failure. And that is why the Bible says pride comes before the fall. Then you come to the heart of the psalm, and it is most beautiful. In contrast to the proud who trusts himself is the one whose trust is in God alone. Look again at verse 2. Surely, David says, I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. David draws from the analogy of a child weaned from its mother's milk, which the baby once found indispensable and would go into whatever conniption fit necessary to get it. And I've witnessed that many a time. Uh, as you all know, Kathy and I have uh, 10 children. Uh, Kathy breastfed every one of those uh, children. And uh, I have seen this lived out many times. And uh, she has lived through it even many, many more uh, times. Uh, but the wean child is no longer restless with its mother because it no longer frets for the mother's milk. Uh, the baby can rest content and secure, laying on its mother's breast, knowing all is well. David is saying, I've learned to compose myself. I've learned to quiet my soul. I've learned to be free from fretting, from whining, from getting upset with God when He did not give me what I thought I needed, what was indispensable for my happiness. David learned to be content, resting on God, trusting in God alone, believing that the great Jehovah was the one who loved him most. And not only did he love him most, but he also knew what was best for David. You know, God's goal for his child, for you and me, is our emotional and spiritual maturity. And if that is true, then it's also absolutely necessary for God to wean us. And often to wean us from good things in order to give us better things. I think if we were all honest, we would acknowledge, left to ourselves, we would become content too easy. Uh, we would not grow. We would stay in a state of immaturity. And God doesn't want that to happen. He wants us to learn to trust, to rest in Him, to place our confidence in Him, to find contentment in Him, because that is the way we demonstrate His reality to a lost world. Now, in the last verse, David becomes the teacher. 
and encourager to the entire nation. Look again at verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. David encourages the people of Israel to put their full trust in the Lord and not to deceive themselves in thinking they can solve their own problems. When adversity strikes, God's child can trust God to intervene. God may not give you the outcome you desire, but if you will trust Him, He will give you the outcome best for your spiritual good, for your spiritual growth and God's greater glory. You can rest content and secure on God's breast and say, it is well with my soul. Now look in your notes at the historical background, and for much of this I've uh, quoted an English Bible teacher. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, Psalm 131 is one of the four Psalms of David, which Hezekiah included in the Psalms of the Degrees. And this is how the great English Bible teacher John Phillips suggested why Hezekiah would have selected David's Psalm and its relevance to Hezekiah's day. And this is his quote, all this, of course, was especially relevant in Hezekiah's day, the overthrow of Sennacherib's host, Sennacherib being the king of Assyria at the time, the overthrow of Sennacherib's host was a major step in Israel's spiritual development. The danger now was that the nation would become cocky and independent, forgetting that God had given the victory, or else horrified and appalled at the devastation wrought in the land by the invader and fearful that the Assyrians might come back. The nation might feel a debilitating sense of insecurity. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Words could not be more appropriate to Hezekiah's need at this crisis hour in trying to bring before his people the spirit that should motivate the nation. One can picture him handing this short psalm over to the choir master. Note this last verse, he might say. When the choir comes to this verse, make them sing it out with all they have. Pull out all the stops. Uh, end of quote. And then let me add, as you continue there with that historical background, I might also add, it is interesting to remember that God had to humble the prideful heart of Hezekiah after he was healed from his illness and failed to give God the credit when visited by the delegation from Babylon. We uh, already looked at this in a previous lesson But we read in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 25 and 26 concerning this. But Hezekiah gave no return, talking about no return, no credit to God, no glory to God for the benefit he received, referring to his miraculous healing from his illness. Because his heart was proud, therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Could it be Hezekiah included this psalm of David as a reminder 
of the lesson learned, the lesson God had to teach him. You know, one of my favorite quotes, and it's there at the very end of the historical background, one of my most favorite quotes about this psalm comes from the uh, great evangelist of old, uh, preacher, teacher Spurgeon. He says, one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Amen? That's great. One of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. So, in the little time that we have left, uh, look at me at uh, several lessons to be learned for today. And the first point relates to the prideful heart, to the prideful heart. The word translated proud means to be lifted up, and it carries the idea of undervaluing people. So the word translated proud in the Hebrew text literally means to be lifted up, and it carries the idea first of undervaluing people, unless they seem worth cultivating for my advantage. But not only undervaluing other people, also what? Notice the next blank. Overestimating the importance of yourself. So that's the, that, that's the heart of, of pride. Undervaluing others while I overestimate my own self, my own uh, importance. And then look at that last sentence. The under ultimate goal is to be exalted in the eyes of others and receive the adulation of men. So that, that's, that's the essence of pride, undervaluing other people unless you see them in some way where you can cultivate this relationship to your advantage, exploit that relationship, overestimating your own importance and the goal of it all, what's at the heart of all of it, is, is desiring to be exalted in the eyes of others, to receive men's adulation. Now, there are a lot of different directions I could go right at this point, but with my time limitations, I think it would be most important to see how pride even infects our service to God. Look at the example in your notes from Matthew 6.1. This is Jesus teaching this part of the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his followers, his disciples, and he says, beware. I'm, I'm warning you of something right now. You need to pay attention. That, that's what that word beware means. He says, give me your full attention. You know, listen up now because I'm going to give you a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise... You have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Circle that phrase, to be noticed. To be noticed. See, that's pride. Where we engage in Christian activities, in Christian service, not so much out of a desire to please God and to gain His approval, but we're really doing it to be noticed by others to receive the applause, the admiration of others. You know, that phrase, to be noticed, in the Greek text, it's the word theomai, and that word is related to the term from which we get the word theater. Jesus, listen now, 
Jesus, because we all struggle with this, and I'll be the first to raise my hand. I can't imagine any believer that uh, has not had to fight this battle. Jesus is warning about practicing, practicing Christianity where your motive is to catch, again, men's eyes to receive the applause of men. And throughout Matthew 6, especially verses 1 through 18, Jesus calls a person guilty of this sin. You know what he calls them? Repeatedly. Hypocrite. And if you know anything about Jesus' ministry, he withheld his greatest, harshest condemnation for those that were guilty of this sin, the sin of hypocrisy. Now, do you know the original meaning of the word hypocrite? The word referred to a Greek actor who wore a mask to portray a role being acted out. The term then came to refer to anyone who was pretending to be something that he was not in order to get the applause or the affirmation of other people. A Christian hypocrite, listen now, a Christian hypocrite is anyone who tries to use the things of God to promote him or herself. The goal is not to put God on display. That's why we live. What did Jesus say earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, but not to put you on display, but they, they might what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, what happens is giving, praying, church attendance, ministry to others, and even the Bible become props used to stage a theatrical production. Oh, God is in the show all right, but he's reduced to a supporting role. Guess who the star of the show is? Self. Self seeking the applause of men. Now, going back to Matthew 6.1, notice at the end of the verse... Jesus said, if your goal is to be noticed by others, you have what? No reward with your Father in heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, your motive is to seek the applause of men. You have your reward, but you have no reward with me. Because what was behind it all was stinking pride. and a desire to promote self instead of promoting me. Now, let me give you the test that determines whether or not this is an issue in your life. How do you feel when your ministry or your good deeds or your active service or your solo or your teaching a class, whatever it might be, goes unnoticed by people when you don't receive a single word of affirmation there's no word of appreciation no thank you I, I, I really appreciate that uh, brother Andy in other words can you be content 
that God alone noticed it. And that you have his applause. That you have his reward. Look at the consequence of a prideful heart there in your sermon notes. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. James 4, 6. God is what? Opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those words were written to believers, especially that James passage. It's not fun to live your Christian life being opposed every step of the way by God because of my pride. But God will oppose you. And He'll oppose you because He loves you. Because He knows ultimately pride is only going to destroy you. Because again, pride goes before destruction. God doesn't want you to be destroyed. He loves you. He wants your spiritual growth. He wants you to live for His glory. So God opposes the pride. He brings consequences to try to get your attention, break you of that stinking pride, break you of that self-seeking to where you humble yourself before God and you see that, yes, yes, it is all about God and not me. God, again, is not my means to achieve my ends, give me my every dream come true. No, I'm God's means to achieve His ends. I live to extend His presence in this world, to express the beautiful character of Jesus Christ, to execute His will, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to edify God's family, and to engage the lost with the gospel of Jesus. That's why I live. And then look at the corrective for a prideful heart. Uh, Philippians 2.3. Do nothing. You might want to circle that word nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. In other words, don't do anything out of selfishness, self-seeking. Don't do anything out of a desire to put yourself up on a pedestal. But with humility... That would be better translated with lowliness of mind. Let each of you regard one another, what? More important than himself. What did we say was the heart of pride? Undervaluing others while overestimating myself. So the corrective is to let lead in my thoughts as I I relate to others that they are most valued. And that I live to serve them. And the thought in this verse is, you know, it's all in the context of let this attitude be in you which was in Christ Jesus. So that's where the battle's going to be. This is how you can can have this corrected. You You can turn things. Again, it's only by God's grace, only by God's power at working in you, but it's a relationship. I have to be responsive to God in the process. And so what God is saying is, as you move about life, as you relate to others, as you relate to your spouse or your children or your neighbors or your workers or fellow students or your church family, he's saying, listen to your thoughts. Bring every thought captive 
to the obedience of Christ. Bring your affections, bring your will. It's not difficult to discern when you're making yourself most important and you're just trying to utilize other people to achieve your ends for your benefit. And he says, stop that. So he says, instead, you let lead in your thoughts. You be conscious, you be deliberate in turning to God and saying, no, God, I'm I'm not going to go that direction. I'm, I'm choosing right now to go your way. My wife is the most important person in this marriage relationship, not Andy Merritt. You've brought me into this relationship to love her, to serve her, to help her reach her full potential in Christ. And that's true of my children, grandchildren. This church, and it's true of all of us in the relationships that we encounter. Look at the second point, haughty eyes. The prideful heart focuses the eyes on selfish ambition. The prideful heart brings a focus to my life, and sadly, it's selfish ambition. The proud person is always looking to compare and compete with others and scheming in his heart on how to outdo or outperform others to achieve his own selfish interest. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. Here's a great passage on selfish ambition. And again, our time's going quickly. I'll just basically have the opportunity to read this, make very little comment, but this is a pretty uh, direct passage and speaks uh, very easily for itself. James, I'll begin reading uh, James chapter 3, verse 13. I'll read all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. James writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness or meekness of wisdom. And that word gentleness, meekness, has a thought of releasing your rights, releasing your expectations, not only in terms of your relationship with God, but with others, because you exist to serve God. You exist to serve others. So a servant has no rights. A servant has no expectations. His one goal in life is to serve God, to serve others. But, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be what? What's behind it all? Arrogant, pride. And so lie against the truth. This wisdom, he's talking about selfish ambition, is not that which comes from above. This doesn't come from God. This doesn't come from heaven. But it is earthly, natural, and demonic. So in other words, as you begin to walk through life, as you begin to relate to others, and when you see this jealousy creep into your heart, this selfish ambition, you don't have to think for even a second. You can realize this is not God. This is of the devil. And I need to nip this in the bud right now, put an end to it, and give myself to love this person, serve this person, in doing so, following God is my, in the ultimate goal in it all. And in verse 16, for where jealousy and self-ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle, reasonable, 
full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and what? Without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. So what James does, he says, you got a choice. You going to follow the wisdom from above or that which comes from the devil? Jealousy, selfish ambition that creates disorder in every evil. And then as you move into chapter 4, he tells you what selfish ambition produces in human relationships, whether it's in your home, your family, workplace, school, church family. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the, the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members? You know what he's saying there is? He's saying when you are directed by selfish ambition, self-seeking, and then as you walk through life and you confront someone who appears to be blocking you from getting what you want, then, brother, all hell's going to break out for me to get what I want. And I'll take you out to get what I want. He says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You can even pray out of stinking pride and selfish ambition. So that you may spend it on your... He, and then he, says, then he gets to the heart. He says, you adulteresses. He says, this, is, this is actually being an adulterer with your relationship with God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? By the way, let me just stop there. He's talking about worldliness. We tend to always define worldliness in terms of legalism, a lot of rules and regulations. James doesn't have anything to say about legalism. He said, what is it? The heart of worldliness is stinking pride and selfish ambition. Selfishness. The problem is not external things. It's my heart. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, or do you think that the Spirit, Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is what? Opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Need to move on. Wish I could linger. But consequence, we've already noted it. James 3, 16. What is the consequence of selfish ambition? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. What is the corrective? You go back to Philippians chapter 2, but this time verse 4. We're talking about haughty eyes, where in verse 4 we read, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. In other words, what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on what you want, or are you focusing on serving others? And it's in this context, he says, what's the very next verse? He says, don't look to your own interests. Don't be self-seeking, but look to the interests. Look to the welfare of others. Have this attitude. That was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, equal with God, he did not consider that equality what something to selfishly grasp and cling on to. But he emptied himself of all of his rights, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He was found in appearances of man, and he humbled himself 
to the point of what? Death. Even death on the cross. Why? To love you. To serve you. Because he was thinking of your salvation, your welfare. Look at the third point. The weaned soul. Like a weaned child resting peacefully upon his mother, this is the soul resting peacefully on God. Totally confident, God will take care of me. Totally confident, He will take care of me. Go back briefly to Psalm 131.2. You can look there at the very front of your notes. Look at that second verse again. David said, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against my mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Circle the word composed and then circle the word quieted. The word composed literally means to lie down. The word quieted means to make level or to make calm. So David says... When adversity strikes, when I'm in a tough pinch, I've learned to lie down and calm my soul. Like a weaned child rest against my mother, I have learned to rest on God. And notice, you'll never know contentment. You'll never know contentment. You will never know contentment. You will never know peace until you lie down your life in absolute surrender to God. And when I say lie down your life and surrender to God, that also implies you lie down all your expectations to God. You no longer have expectations except to know God. And you can do that because, as we stated earlier, the one who loves you most knows what's best for you. If God is for me, who or what can be against me? And that is said in the context that he won't allow anything to touch me, that he can't ultimately cause it to all work for my good. My spiritual benefit. Now, notice, this is something David said he learned to do. He says, I have composed my, I have quieted. How did he do that? Very, very quickly, turn to Psalm 62. I want to show you Since David wrote Psalm 131, I thought it would be great to go to another Psalm of David where we see him living this out. We don't really know what the occasion was when David wrote Psalm 62. Many, many Bible teachers believe it was uh, dealing with Absalom's rebellion toward the end of David's life. I, I tend to agree with that position just because of the uh, level of maturity that is expressed in this psalm, and also uh, sort of what he was up against. Uh, The fact that uh, um, 
he was being assailed and, uh, and uh, threatened. And he, and he makes mention of the fact he was trying to be thrust down from his high position, uh, which seems to be uh, what, of course, would have been going on with uh, David, uh, uh, with Absalom trying to capture the throne. Uh, let me read, uh, well, let's just, let me just read the first eight verses. And then, if you're willing to do this, I want you to circle a few words in your Bible. My soul waits in silence for God, circle the next word, only. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. Verse 2, He only, circle only. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 3, how long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you? He's, he's referring to those that are after him to murder him. And, then, and he's referring to himself when he says, I'm like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. I'm about to fall at any moment because of the attack that's coming against me. Verse 4, they have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. Verse 5, my soul, wait in silence for God. Circle the next word, only. Wait in silence for God, only. For my hope is from Him. Verse 6, He only, circle that word, only, is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Notice the progression. Up in verse 2, He said, I shall not be greatly shaken. Now He's at the place where He says, hey, I'm not even going to be shaken. Uh, Verse 7, On God, my salvation, and my glory, circle that word, rest. You might want to draw a picture of a little baby right there. Because when he says, oh my God, God, my salvation, my glory, rest, that's the weaned child resting securely with its mom, knowing that all is well, that the mother would take care of everything. And he's resting on God. Knowing all is well. God will take care of everything. Neither the rock of my strength, my refuge in God. Verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, all people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Now, I had you circle the word only. I don't have time to develop it, but here it is. I'm 67 years old. Soon to be 68. I have... uh, Walk with God for many, many decades now. I have come to the place. Now, not saying I have learned this truth, but I've come to the place in my life, probably the last 10 years, where I've realized this truth. And I'm committed to God teaching it to me. And I'm still struggling with it. But I came to a place and I realized God's ultimate goal in Andy Merritt's life is to wean me from everything that I can see, touch, or feel in this world. Wean me from everything that is special in me. And to teach me that God only is enough. 
That song we sang is a perfect song. I'm going to close with that song. And I believe that's God's ultimate goal in the life of every believer, to get us to the place where we can honestly say, God is enough. You can take everything else from me, but you can't take God from me because he'll never leave me or forsake me, and God is enough no matter what I'm going through. He satisfies I have found contentment in him and him alone. I believe that's the primary message in the book of Job. Most people talk about it's suffering. Most people talk about faith. I don't think so. I think suffering is the background. I think faith is the means by which we come to the end result. But I think the great lesson in Job is God stripped this man of everything. He took his family from him. He took his wealth from him. He took his health from him. He took respect from him, from his friends. And the test was, would he come to the place and be able to say, God's enough. So I've come to the place, I believe that's God's ultimate goal in my life and your life, to wean us from this world. To where God only is enough. Look at the consequence of a weaned soul. Just have time to read it, but a beautiful consequence. This is this, and 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 I hope you see throughout this. Notice David said he had to learn this. Notice Paul in this passage says, This doesn't happen overnight. You don't wean a child overnight. It takes time. And it takes years. But notice Paul says, not that I speak from want. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. In other words, Paul is saying, God, wean me of all that. He brought that old terrible thorn in the flesh in my life to wean me of self-sufficiency and to put me on God's breast, God's milk, God's word, God's presence. And I found that satisfies. That's eternal satisfaction, eternal commitment. And then the corrective, and we'll end with this, five soul-searching questions. This is where you just need to get alone with God and in God's presence, ask him to put the spotlight, his spotlight of his holiness on you and ask these questions. First, what is the condition of my heart before God? He says, oh, Lord, my heart is not proud. So get along with God. God, what is the condition of my heart? Do I have a proud heart? Do I have a haughty eyes? Is there anything that I'm resisting you on? Because, Lord, folks, as long as if you're not surrendered to him, if you're not following his will, he's, he's opposing you. Second question, where am I focused? In other words, what am I focused on? He says, no, my eyes haughty. These questions all come right out of this psalm. Where am I focused? What am I focused on? What's important to me? What am I seeking in life? Am I truly, as it says in Matthew 6, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that as I do, all these other things will be added to me? Or am I seeking my own self-interest? 
So am I seeking God and his interest or am I seeking Andy Merritt and his interest? What am I most concerned about? He said, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Uh, in other words, just give you one little example. You know, you may, may be in a family, you have a kid, and you're having trouble with a kid. Maybe his behavior, might be something at school, it could be a million different things. Or it could just be some, a family member, might could be or a cl- close friend. Are you really concerned for the child or the family member, or is the issue your pride? You're embarrassed. You're embarrassed because of your pride. It's not really concern for the individual. So what are you most concerned about? Am I choosing gratitude and contentment? That is a choice we make as we walk through life, as we encounter trial and adversity, as things are stripped from us. Will I turn to God in gratitude and contentment? Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. And then the last question, where is my hope placed? O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And that's where God ultimately wants to take us, where our hope is what? Focused on Him, in Him. Oh, Job said what? Though He slay me, I will what? Trust Him. I will trust him. And as David said, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. In other words, God knows the struggle we're all going to have with the weaning process, just like that baby has a struggle with it. That's okay. But just give opportunity for God to teach you the lesson that he has for you. Father, thank you again for this magnificently beautiful little psalm. And as Spurgeon said, I don't know anyone could have said it better, uh, takes so little time to read, but takes a lifetime to learn. And uh, so, Lord, uh, meet us where we are. You know where we are. You know what our struggles are. Lord, forgive us for our fretting, for our whining, for our demanding of you to give us what we think is indispensable for our happiness. And Lord, uh, teach us uh, to rest in you and you alone. And teach us as we're about to sing that you truly are enough. And in coming to that place, we would demonstrate to a dark, lost world the infinite beauty, value, and worth of Jesus Christ, which in his name we do pray.